Ephesians 1.15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strengthen us physically for the teaching and the preaching and the hearing of your word that you'd strengthen us spiritually as well. May the Holy Spirit touch every heart, guide every heart. May the Savior be properly magnified today. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a number of sermons in this uh, paragraph. A pretty good outline to follow that I will not follow today. Might go something like this. Paul prayed for wisdom to understand the will of God in three areas. The hope of our heavenly calling, verse number 18. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in us. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. Thinking about point number three, the exceeding greatness of his power, what exactly does the power of God exceed? Think about it. Consider the most powerful thing that you've ever witnessed. Multiply it 10,000 times and you haven't touched the hem of the garment as yet, the exceeding power of God. What are some of those powerful things that man has ever created? I've just finished reading two history books one about uh, Idaho and one about southern British Columbia. And both of them spoke about the early uh, trains in the area, the locomotives. Those early trains in the, uh, early for this part of the world anyway, uh, mid-1800s, a little later than that. Um, thousand times more power, excuse me, a hundred times more powerful than the, the average horse. 100 horsepower. Uh, and yet those trains, both up north and, and, and going through the St. Joe River over here and getting into the St. Joe, uh, they required extra locomotives to pull a half a dozen cars up the hill and safely down the hill on the other side. Despite the power of those things, it just wasn't sufficient to get the job done. Over time, those locomotives got bigger and bigger. 
they tell me now that the average uh, locomotive is somewhere around 4,000 horsepower. Pretty good size. But that's not even to be compared to the cargo ships in the oceans where they might have as many as 6,000 horsepower per engine, per motor. Where did the ability, where did the knowledge come to man to create that power, to harness that power, to put it to use? When man divides certain atoms, it creates enough power to vaporize things within uh, several miles of that uh, explosion. But what about the God who put the power in that atom, atom to begin with? And then let's remember we're talking about atoms, which are you know, a little smaller than that. Uh, and that power is there. What sort of God can do that sort of thing? The God who has exceeding great power. When a smallish volcano explodes in western Washington and kills and devastates a big area of the, the state, sending ash into Calgary, Alberta, uh, that demonstrates the power of God. But that was a relatively small volcano in comparison to others. What power our God has. And how much energy is there in the uh, itty-bitty star that we call our sun, not to be compared with other stars that are out there. We might have a long discussion about uh, what great power there might be in this world. But whatever example we use, those powers are nothing compared to the miracles of Jehovah. Yes. And what is the greatest of all miracles? We might debate that too. But as far as I'm concerned, the greatest of all miracles was what was necessary to redeem this uh, wretched heart of mine the chiefest of sinners, that which was required before salvation was possible. For several reasons, it can be argued that Jesus' resurrection and ascension stretched the power of God to its... Uh, how foolish I am. To the ultimate limit of God. Uh, we use those words, excuse me, I used those words, you probably wouldn't, but it, it just doesn't match, doesn't, doesn't fit. Jesus' resurrection and ascension was huge because God had to supersede the effects of physical death. Jesus died on the cross. And that is something that scientists and philosophers and poets and physicians have been trying to duplicate uh, ever since. Not even coming close. We've been able to extend life to the year 74, for example. But to do away with death? Uh, still working on that. Not going to happen. God's law said that it's a human impossibility. And yet, God's law says, God's word says, there's nothing impossible with God. Jesus' resurrection was contrary not only to the physical laws 
governing death, but the spiritual laws governing death as well. When Jesus died, he did so as the bearer of the sins of many. On him were laid the sins of so many multitudes. He in his own body bare our sins on the tree that sinners like us might be more than just set free, but made alive. God's law said, sinner, bow before me. Sin bearer, bow before me. And Christ did, and then said, all right, I'm done. And up from the grave he arose. And third, Jesus' resurrection was opposed by every ounce of satanic strength. If a man thinks that he can bench press 200 pounds, Satan can press 20,000 pounds. If a man thinks that he can leap 20 feet, I don't know what a good long jumper does these days. Well, Satan can leap 2,000 feet. And if a man thinks that he can extend his life by a few years, we have to remember that Satan has been alive for 6,000 years. He's, He's got us beat in every way. Yet despite Lucifer's great abilities, he was incapable of even slowing the resurrection of the Savior. God will never display greater power than in the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brought about my salvation. These things being true, since the Lord Jesus has been raised from death and received into heaven, he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. It was a part of the scripture that we read from Revelation. It's a part of what we read here in Ephesians. And we usually just skip right over that. That's my theme this morning. The right hand of God. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God in the command room of the universe. This morning's scripture is important in several ways. As I say, suggesting this particular theme. This is proof. Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is proof of the power and the authority of Christ. He didn't forsake us when he went into heaven. He ascended into heaven there as our our mediator and intercessor sitting at the right hand of the throne of God to speak into his Father's ears on our behalf. And that is the guarantee of our safety, our spiritual prosperity, our salvation as the children of God. Sin couldn't confine our Lord to the grave, nor could death alone, nor could uh, the satanic world That head, which was once crowned with thorns, now wears the royal diadem of heaven and the universe. Jesus is now, as the saint's everlasting mediator, a glorified high priest after the order of Melchizedek, ministering on our behalf. The Savior is at the right hand of the Father 
with angels and authorities and powers subject unto him. And our point is, we should be comforted by that thought. There he is. Our Savior, Jesus, now holds that highest of all seats. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is crowned with honor and glory, sitting at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. Now the right hand of God is a place of honor and dignity. There was an occasion after Solomon's ascension to his father's throne, David's throne, when Solomon's mother came in, she had a request. It was on behalf of his half-brother, Adonijah. When the king saw his mother, she is his mother. He arose from his royal throne and bowed himself to her. And then he sat back down and he ordered some of his servants to go bring a, a, a chair and set it there at his right hand so that Bathsheba, his mother, could sit there. In those days, that act was one of the highest honors that a king could bestow on any other person. Here, sit at my right hand. It was not necessarily expected, even by the king's mother. Usually petitioners and servants were required to stand before the king. I have this need, king, would you do this for me? And they either stood or they bowed before the king. They didn't sit beside him. This was, one, uh, was more than a son's honor of his mother. This was the uh, honor of a sovereign king to a favored subject. The request that Bathsheba presented was denied. She had no authority whatsoever. And he saw what was going on. Eventually, Adonijah was put to death for the rebel and sinner that uh, he was. Listen to the words of Psalm 45. These are 6 through 9. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness, hated, hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy throne, O God, therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad, king's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. The psalmist wasn't referring to Solomon or David or any other earthly king. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 as being a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who hath at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So the psalmist in 42, 46 spoke about God and God and a relationship between God, not gods, God. And then the writer of Hebrews clarified it for us. We're talking about Christ Jesus, the Savior, who after he gave his life sat on the right hand of God the Father. Who is the queen at the right hand of the Son of God? We have God the Father, God the Son, and at his right hand, we have the queen. Who is the queen? I believe that she represents people like you and me. People saved by the blood of Christ. Where does she stand? She's still standing. She does not deserve to be there. He, the Savior, deserves to be where he is. We're there by grace. We're standing. We're at the right hand of the Savior. Praise the Lord for that. You will receive a share of the honor bestowed upon the Son of God. If by grace you are a child of God. Mm -hmm. Are you a child of God? But it's not you and me that I'm considering this morning. I want us to think about the Savior, the second person of the Trinity. Let us worship the King this morning. The Bible clearly shows that Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. By Him were all things made that are in heaven, that are in earth, everything that was made. By Him, all, the, all things created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. I didn't say that properly, but you get the point. Christ was and is the God of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus said to the Jews, Verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. And they immediately picked up stones to try to execute this blasphemer who was not speaking blasphemy because it was absolutely true. Christ is is the God of the flood, the God of the plagues of, of Egypt. He's the God who spoke to Joshua, who empowered Deborah and Barak, who built the kingdom of David, who brought uh, uh, Solom, uh, Sodom down and, and Babylon too. But when the God of the universe was incarnate, when he was in human flesh, living among us, he was not given the honor that was due to his name. He came unto his own and his own received him not. How characteristic were the people of Gadara? Christ healed one of their own and they pushed him away. They pushed him away in Galilee. They pushed him away in Jerusalem. Even even some of the professed disciples pushed away the Savior. He was not given the honor that he was due. 
The God of heaven and earth was rejected by his creation. And we were talking about temptations this morning in Sunday school. And I alluded to the temptations that befell Christ. One of them, I think, must have been involved in the temptation was a yearning for the glory and the honor that he once had with the Father, that he, he lacked. He speaks of it in John 17. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The infinite Son of God, by his very character, demands respect. And he didn't have much of that when he was here. He deserves our very best. No unworthy sacrifices are acceptable on his altar. And in his ascension to heaven and his glorification, we see the Father's answer to that prayer in John 17. Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. At the very least, it is a place of honor. But it's far more than that. It's just not, not honor. It's much beyond that. At the right hand of God is also the place of supreme authority and power. Exodus 15. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And spake saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he hath thrown into the sea. Speaking of the Exodus. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he thrown into the sea. His chosen captains are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Ephesians 1, if you're still there, verse number 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when God the Father raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand, his own right hand in heavenly places, far above principality, far above any power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. At the right hand, all things are put under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Not only is our Savior above and beyond the grave, he is above all things. Verse 21 reminds us of the obvious. There's nothing in creation higher than the creator. It is silly science fiction 
to hear these stories about uh, uh, computers and uh, AI eventually taking over and killing off the man who created the computer in the first place. Christ is undefeatable. No part of his creation will ever be greater than the creator. In addition to being the head of all things, he is the authority over all things. Christ said of himself, all powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28. And his sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high is a modest illustration of that all authority. The Son of Man, Christ, has power enough to control all the forces of nature. He can tell the wind to blow, and he can tell the wind to stop blowing. He can say, I choose this certain hailstone to kill that wicked man. And we see it happening in the Word of God. He can make a small meal grow until it fills the bellies of thousands of people. Christ Jesus has the power over life and death and resurrection. And he can say to the stinking, decaying body of Lazarus, Come out! Lazarus has no choice. Out he comes. Is the power, the resurrection, the life, and he who puts his trust in Christ, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He has power over disease and hunger and thirst, murderous mobs, lions and lions and tigers and bears. And perhaps even more importantly, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Any sin. Who can forgive sins but God only? Excellent question. No one can. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Christ Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And this power is declared and proven by his resurrection and his ascension and his seating at the right hand of the throne of God. He has been declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the grave. How well suited he is to fight our battles. For all things are under his feet. You and I can be more than conquerors as we lean on him. The center of the universe is upheld by the power of his his word. And no weapon can be found to hurt the friend of God beyond the Lord's permission. No wonder we should honor the Son, even as we honor the Father. The right hand of the Lord is a place of authority. It's also the place of blessedness and supply. I've used this I brought this to your attention before, but I enjoy it so much I'll do it once again. 
The Latin word for left hand is sinister. As in, there was a sinister plan in that evil heart. You might know the word for left hand because I've used it before, but what about the Latin word for the right hand? It is dexter. The big man with the huge hands was surprisingly dexterous with his handling of that tiny tool. With with those two words, we have the opposite, contrary ideas. We have evil on the left hand, we have blessedness, dexterity on the right hand. For those of you who are left-handed, I'm not picking on you. It's just, I'm just giving you what the Latin says. All right? At thy right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse number 11. So it is with Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. In that fact, there is a message of constant supply and a lesson of our needs being met. Joseph. We've had a couple of lessons on him. Thank you for those, Brother Fulton. We're looking for that, looking with anticipation toward that last lesson next week. Joseph, son of Jacob, type of Christ. He was the beloved of his father. He hated evil. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold for a few pieces of silver. He became a servant. By the way, I was expecting you to ask, when his brothers sold Joseph into slavery, how much did they receive? 20 pieces of silver. When the Ishmaelites took him down to uh, Egypt, they didn't sell him for 20 pieces of silver. They had to make some profit. It does not say in the scripture But they probably sold him for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of our Savior's betrayal. Scripture doesn't actually say that, but that's the way I read it, uh, as far as Joseph is concerned. He was a prophet. He was falsely accused. So much more. He is such a wonderful picture of the Savior. But then Joseph became the right-hand man of Potiphar and then Pharaoh. And what was his primary function in that position? When he became the right-hand man of Pharaoh, what was his primary job? To feed and bless. To feed and bless. Another illustration is found in the judgment of the nations described in Matthew 25. There were the goat nations, and they were to stand on the left hand. And there were the sheep nations, they were to stand on the right hand. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. With Jesus at the right hand of the Father, we have a guarantee of spiritual provision. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, ye shall receive. And this position of Christ also illustrates the exaltation and acceptance 
of his humanity. I'm not talking about an earthly king who honors one of his favorite friends. This ascension of Christ was not the rising of a human son to some relatively important position. It was the Son of God rising and returning to the position that was rightfully his. To sit upon the throne that he occupied for an eternity. Something was changed after Jesus' birth. And something was changed after Jesus' death and resurrection. Christ has always been the Son of God. But now he is the God-man, the theanthropic person. And this is extremely important, theologically and practically. Christ is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted as we are. He understands. He overcame. He can treat us as, as we are and as, as we have needs. He has experienced our temptations, our sorrows, the pain of death, as well as the joys of life. And we roll back the curtain of heaven and we take a peek into the throne room of God and there we see in Revelation chapter 5 Christ at the right hand of the Father. In fact, that passage speaks about the right hand several times as a place, as a, an instrument of, of power as well as position. Here is perhaps the most blessed point about the occupant of the right hand of the Father. This one so highly honored now is Jesus, my vicarious substitute, my Savior. He's the Savior of tens of thousands of others, but hey, he's my Savior. And that's what's important to me. <laughs> Our God is not a carved stump, he's not a rock, he's not a fiery mountain. He's not a ghostly impression on a shroud. He's Jesus, the God-man, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's returned to the honored place that was his because he completed the purpose of the Godhead in giving his life a ransom to save many. Let that fill your thoughts. He is there at the right hand of God because he did what he intended to do, which involves the salvation of so many, including me. Every knee shall bow someday. Every tongue shall honor the Savior someday as King of kings and Lord of lords. But by far, the majority will bestow that honor under duress. They do not love the Savior. They don't intend to worship him. There's no reverence in that. We acknowledge you as king of kings. The vast majority of the people of this world despise Christ. They will die despising Christ. And they will go into eternity despising Christ. But in that day, they'll be forced to bow their knee before Christ. And then they will hear their eternal damnation. 
I'm speaking to you about Christ this morning because I'd like the privilege of introducing you to Him if you do not know the Savior. If He's not your Redeemer, I'd like to take you to Calvary and show you the Savior bleeding there and ultimately dying there. That blood brings about redemption from sin. That death means life for those who put their trust in Him. I, I urge you to bow your knee today before the Savior. You need a Redeemer. We need a Redeemer. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Christ? Have you called on His name? God, be merciful to me, a wretched sinner. There he is at the right hand of the throne of God with his eyes on you, pleading with you. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to your soul and heart today? Do you need a Savior? Come to the Savior this morning. Please stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I I ask that in your will in your What words should I use? I pray that in your estimation, I have properly presented Christ today. Perhaps it's not been a gospel message per se, but uh, you had a purpose in it. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd strengthen the children of God. And if there be someone here or someone who hears from some other source this message again. I pray for souls to be saved. Again, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please get a hymnal. Turn to number 310. 310. There is room at the cross for you. doesn't matter how many... Hundreds of thousands the Lord has saved. There's still a little room for you to kneel there. 310. The cross upon which Jesus died Is a shelter in 